So we're going to be looking at this subject once again, the uh, parable of the uh, unforgiving servant, it's often called, or the unmerciful servant. And today we're going to be considering the kindness of the ruler or the king in this parable. So would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 18? We're going to be reading once again this parable found in verse 21, uh, Matthew 18, from verse 21 to verse 35. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how many times shall my brother sin against me and I still forgive him? Up to seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his master commanded that he be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the master of that slave felt compassion, and he released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. And so his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he would pay back what was owed. And so when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their master all that had happened. And then summoning him, his master said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his master, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he would repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. We thank you, Father, for sending your Son, and in so doing, expressed to us your ultimate desire to forgive sinners who deserved death, and re reconciling us to yourself through his death. We are now your children, fully forgiven, seated at your right hand, why would you do such a thing? Why would you extend such grace to us? You are an amazing God. We pray that today, once again, our eyes would be enlightened and that our minds would be enlightened with your truth so that we can embrace it and live it out in our daily walk. Strengthen each one of us for your name's sake, we pray. In Christ's holy name, amen. Please be seated. Last week, we started to look at this parable in which the Lord underscores the priority of forgiveness. 
and forgiveness is extolled in society. You've heard of uh, individuals who have forgiven uh, those who've done them wrong. And every time we hear one of these stories, we are moved by them and we are um, impressed with the person's ability to forgive someone. And we know of many such stories, but these stories pale when we think of the forgiveness that the Father has given us. And this parable underscores the kind-heartedness of God, and subsequently, because of that, we are also called to forgive. And when we stop to consider the degree of forgiveness that we see in God towards sinners, and that he expects us to forgive others who've wronged us in the same way, we find it far more um, difficult than we would ever think. How can we ever forgive this way? Last week I spoke about Simon Weisenthal and how um, he was asked um, to see the man who was an SS trooper while in concentration camp. He was in an infirmary and the man who was at his last held Simon's hand and told of all the atrocities that he had done throughout his life and how he had massacred Jews. And then he asked for forgiveness and you'll remember that uh, Simon looked at him, pulled his hand away and said, I'm sorry, I can't forgive you. And then walked out of the barn. And um, who could blame such a response? I mean, who could give him uh, blame for reacting that way? I mean, the, the man was um, face to face with um, the impersonation of Nazism, right? So here's a young man who had massacred Jews, was asking forgiveness, and Simon Weisenthal refuses. But when we look at this passage, we're told that forgiveness is what God expects from us. And I'm going to be looking at, once again, briefly, the debt of the slave, and then we're going to be looking at the disposition of the ruler of the king. And lastly, we're going to look at the determining factor when it comes to forgiveness. Um, the debt of the slave, in verse 26 we read, So the slave fell to the ground, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. So here we get a glimpse of this man as he is confronted with the personal bankruptcy. The enormity of his debt crushes him. He begins to see his life before his eyes, having so much and now having nothing. Everything he's ever owned is forever gone. And it is this awareness that is necessary when it comes to coming before God for forgiveness. We need to realize that we are spiritually, morally, and in every sense, bankrupt. That we are the one who are, who are in debt towards God. If we feel deep down we are okay, that we uh, are good people and that uh, there's no serious problem with us, then we short-circuit God's grace and we forfeit forgiveness. So, as we said last week, we are debtors. God is not our debtor. We are his debtor. Um, how great is our debt? Think about it for a moment. How great is our debt towards God? Look at Psalm 49 verses 7 
and 8. No one can by any means redeem another or give God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is priceless. That's how great our debt is. We cannot redeem ourselves. We can't redeem someone else. We can't redeem our children. There's just no way we can reconcile ourselves to God with our own good deeds, with our religion and good works. Since we are created in the image of God, the offenses we committed against him cannot be undermined. They are of an enormous magnitude. And since God is holy, we cannot underestimate our sins. We cannot overstate how great is our debt. To each one of us, the words of the prophet Amos ring true. Amos chapter 5, verse 12 says, God speaking to his people, For I know your offenses are many, your sins are great. So this is where we stand as, a human, as humanity before God. Our sins are many, and since the worthiness of the one we sinned against is infinite, how can there be any possibility for us to escape divine judgment? Apart from the cross, there's just no way. It is only when we grasp the severity of our sins that we position ourselves to respond as the publican did when he went to the temple to pray, but you know, he knew he couldn't walk in. He was a publican, a tax collector, and therefore an enemy of the Jews, a friend of Rome. And from a distance, it says, he prayed. So the tax collector, Luke 18, verse 13, standing from a distance from the temple, was unwilling even to raise his eyes toward heaven. Beating his chest, he said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I want you to notice those words. Not a sinner, the sinner. He goes, I am the most sinful one. Have mercy upon me. This is what Paul was saying also when he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15. Speaking of himself, he says, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Then he says, among whom I am foremost. You know, many people say, oh, I'm not perfect, or, you know, we're all sinners, glibly. But to say these words, I am the chief of sinners. I am the first of all sinners. To recognize our sinfulness, just like the publican did, right? Just like David did, when in Psalm 50 verse 4 says, against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. To have that awareness, that's when grace starts to do its work. Because that awareness is a gift from God. You see, when we are not convicted of our sin, when we don't feel that we are sinners, we are deceiving ourselves. We're blinded by the enemy thinking that we are okay. So this is the truth that we focused on last week, and I just gave it to you. Um, just briefly. Only when we grasp our moral bankruptcy and our inability to make amends with a holy God apart from the cross do we, can we then see forgiveness in the right light. 
This is the light that we're going to see today as we look at the disposition now of the king. The disposition of the king is stated in one verse, verse 27 of this parable. Let's reread it. And the master of that slave felt compassion, and he released him and forgave him the debt. That's a remarkable statement. He felt compassion, he released him, and forgave him the debt. So here we are introduced to the clemency of this great king. Therefore, the clemency of our God, the disposition to forgive, his desire to reconcile sinners to himself. God is the only being in this universe, not angels. They don't even come close. And no human being comes even close to anything remotely, um, that we, remotely possible or, or close to what God is. He is full of mercy towards the guilty party. And this is an inexhaustible topic. It's the attribute of God that causes angels to stand in awe. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, we're told that angels desire to look into this topic, the mercy of God towards sinners, and how that mercy is expressed in the cross, and how grace is afforded us through the gospel. The angels are in awe of the mercy of God. They understand justice. That is a topic they are well acquainted with, but not mercy. Mercy is something that is seen only in God in the fullest extent. So the first thing I want you to notice in the request of the man who is indebted 10,000 talents, and it's an enormous amount, imagine $2 billion. We calculated conservatively. In that day, $2 billion today would be what? I don't know, $200 billion. So it's just, this is called hyperbole. It's the Lord showing that our debt is immense. It's immeasurable. There are figures of speech in Scripture. One of them is hyperbole. Another one is euphemism. Euphemism is when we uh, diminish something. For example, instead of saying he died, we say he passed. That's a euphemism. Um, and other kinds of euphemism, right? So the, there's euphemism in Scripture, right, that says, and he was, you'll read, for example, when someone died, and he was laid with to rest with his father's. All right, that's another way of saying he died and he was buried. Hyperbole is this one here. For example, 10,000 talents, which in today's estimation could be $200 billion. It's an enormous debt. And what does the man ask for? He asks for time. Right? He says, give me time. Now, we said last week, that's just ludicrous. How much time would he need to pay back 200 billion, 10,000 talents. Well, he wouldn't have a lifetime to pay it back. He wouldn't have 10 lifetimes to pay back this debt. How could he ever pay back such a debt? So it shows that his request to the king made no sense. And what does this highlight? That when we pray oftentimes, we don't know how to pray when it comes to our sins. We don't understand the magnitude of our sins 
the spiritual bankruptcy that we are experiencing. And therefore, we pray, oh God, you know, please forgive me. Glibly, we don't understand. And the wonderful thing is that while this man makes a request, the king does not grant him his request. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) That's a good thing. If the king would have granted him his request, he would never have been able to pay. So he refuses his prayer. God refuses our prayers at times. He says no to our prayers. And why does he say no? Because they're just not the prayers that he would answer. They're not prayers that really would benefit the sinner. So he asks for time. And what does the king do or this ruler He gives him something he did not ask for. He did not ask for this. Notice. He doesn't ask, have mercy. Forgive me completely. The story is told of uh, a son during days of Napoleon Bonaparte of a woman who was sentenced to death. And it was uh, um, for something he had done while he was in the, I think he had the AWOL. He just left the army and did his own thing, and then they caught up, caught up with him and arrested him, and then he was going to be sentenced to death. And so the mother comes before Napoleon, and she throws herself at his feet and says, have mercy on my son. And so Napoleon answers. He was a man, by the way, well-read of, in scriptures. He knew the Bible very well. <clears throat> and so he looks at her and says, I cannot give mercy to your son. He doesn't deserve mercy. And she says, Your Majesty, if it was mercy, who deserves it? (laughs) Right? (laughs) If it's mercy, who deserves it? No one deserves it. And Napoleon, taken aback with her word, said, I grant him mercy. He will not die. That's what mercy is. But we don't know how to pray that way. Right? We, we, what we do is we say, give me time. I'll somehow figure a way to make it up and to atone for my sins. Thankfully, he doesn't answer that, but he gives him something he did not ask for at all. Right? He asked for time, and the master gives him what? Mercy. He frees him totally, takes away the debt, and lets him go. This humongous debt, totally forgiven. What a bank that would be <laughs> if they were to forgive all the mortgages possible. You know, imagine this humongous debt, forgiven. <laughs> that would be something. That's the nature of this king. He is absolutely merciful. You see, the man could not wring out of the ruler mercy. He could not arm twist him, coerce him, to be merciful. That's impossible. See, the, God is merciful towards us, not because we're able to make him merciful, but because he himself is merciful. He is good. As Jesus told the rich young ruler who came to him and called him a good rabbi, Jesus said these words to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God Alone, right? God alone is good in the most absolute sense. And this is what we see in this rich 
ruler here who looks at this man, who's asking for time, refuses his prayer, and instead gives him mercy, what he never asked for. <laughs> gives him forgiveness, erases his debt, makes him solvent, and sets him free. This is the truth that stands out in scriptures. The prophet Micah, reflecting on God's mercy, says this. Who is a God like you? Who? Who pardons wrongdoing? Passes over a rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again take pity on us. He will trample on our wrongdoings. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Who is a God like this? His kind-heartedness. This is the very nature of God. God is not a wrathful being that uh, time to time gives out mercy. God is a merciful being that holds back his wrath and in small measure gives out his wrath at appropriate times. The full manifestation of his wrath only is displayed at the cross when the father crushes his son. But other than that, it's mercy upon mercy upon mercy. And that's what will stand out when we, stand, when we are going to one day stand before God in eternity. We're going to consider all the acts of mercy, the showers of mercy, the tsunami of mercy, if you could, that has come upon us time after time and how many times we were ungrateful for it. Or for those who have rejected the gospel, how they've turned their back on the mercy of God. That in itself will be a crushing thought. That's the crushing thought. So God is absolutely good. Remember the prodigal son? I spoke about him last week. As he rehearses his prayer, he says, I've sinned against heaven and against you, Father. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Let me be one of your hired servants. What's he saying? I'm going to pay back. That's indentured slavery. That's how an indentured slave paid back a debt. He would stay with someone, work off as many years as needed to pay off that debt. He would eat, um, have a lodging, but have no money given to him except for some small amount. And for the rest of the money that he was owed, it was taken by the owner because there was a debt. And that's what he's saying, the, the, the prodigal son. Let me be like one of your hired servants. I'll pay you back. But you remember what the father did. As soon as he sees the son, the son says the words, I've sinned against heaven and against you, father. I'm no longer worthy, what? To be called your son. Let me be, and father stops him. Doesn't even let him say those words. Right? Why? There's forgiveness. There is mercy. That's what we see in the Father. And if the Father is merciful like that, what does Jesus say? You must be 
perfect as your father is perfect. In fact, this is what God says about himself when it comes to forgiveness. I, I alone, am the one who wipes out your wrongdoings for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. This is remarkable. Why does God forgive us? He doesn't forgive us because we are able to conjure up mercy in the heart of the Father. When the man in the parable is moved in compassion, it's not because he sees him weeping, he sees him on the ground groveling and asking for, some, for time. No, it's because he is a merciful man. God is a merciful God. He alone wipes out our wrongdoings for his own sake. What's he saying? It's because I am merciful and my name is at stake and I will always honor my name. My name is higher than the heavens. So all of creation speaks of his glory, but then there's his name and his name stands above all of that. And so for his name's sake, he says, I forgive. God cannot but forgive those who are undeserving. What a wonderful God. In other words, the reason why we are to do this towards others is because God has been kind, exceptionally kind. Not only, as we saw last week, we are indebted towards him, but now we see also that he is kind towards us, constantly kind. How many times do we sin? How many times do we fall short? And God is merciful and kind. And because of that, we are now called to forgive those who wrong us, who sin against us. We are to forgive them. Now let me bring in the determining factor, which oftentimes escapes us because it escaped me for the longest of times. Verse 27 says, The master of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Notice, the master and the slave. Right? Whenever you see forgiveness pictured in Scripture, forgiveness is always from the one who has leverage towards someone who has no leverage. From someone who has power towards someone who has no power. From someone who has clout towards someone who has no clout. Whether it be in this parable, or whether it be in the story of Joseph, which I'm going to go read through briefly, or whether it be um, Philemon towards Onesimus, right? You never, ever read about someone who has no power, no clout, no leverage, forgiving someone who has power and has wronged him. And the reason why you don't see this is because that is not something that God desires. I'm going to show you from Scripture. I've had to understand this. It took me a long time in dealing with people who had been hurt to understand this. The one question that has often come to me over the years when it comes to forgiveness is how can I forgive someone who I know will hurt me again because he has done it before? I've forgiven my husband or I've forgiven my father or my parents or I've forgiven my friend and uh, and this relationship, I forgive him, and he keeps hurting me. And what is happening is that the person who is forgiving is enabling the person who has been doing wrong, who has wronged this. And it's a valid question. It's something that 
uh, social workers and psychologists deal with on a regular basis. And if we fail to understand forgiveness as God's word shows us forgiveness, then we are going to forgive sometimes when we ought not to forgive right away. We have to do something else first before forgiving. So let me explain with a few examples. Take the character in our Bible. In our Bible, the ruler is the one who is wealthy. The man who is in debt owes him 10,000 talents. This is an enormous amount, which means this man who is wealthy has much more than, let's say, $200 billion. He's the Elon Musk of that day, for example. And here's a very rich person. So he is the one that's forgiving the debt. It is not the other way around, right? It's the master that forgives the person who is completely bankrupt. Um, look at another example, as I mentioned earlier, Joseph. When we read the story of Joseph, we find that when he's a teenager, he is sold into slavery, right? The Midianites take him back uh, all the way to Egypt. There he's sold to Potiphar. He ends up in prison. But then from prison, he's brought before Pharaoh, interprets his dream, and then he becomes second in command. He's the prime minister of Egypt. Under his command, or his prime ministership, the country of Egypt flourishes and Pharaoh becomes extremely wealthy. But he's still a slave, by the way, but he's a wealthy slave. He's free to do what he wants, but he's not free to go. He brings his family, Jacob and all his, the sons of Jacob, and their family and their children into Goshen so they're spared uh, famine. And then later on, we see that Jacob dies. And when Jacob, the father, dies, Joseph's brothers remember the wrong they did to him, right? And they feel guilty, very guilty. In Genesis 50, we read, when Joseph's brothers had seen that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they are feeling guilty and they're feeling afraid. And so they sent instructions to Joseph saying, your father commanded us before he died. Of course, this wasn't true. He commanded them. Why did he command Joseph, right? He commanded us before he died. This is what you shall say to Joseph. Please forgive, I beg you, the offense of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now, now they're asking, and now please forgive the offense of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him. Now notice what the brothers are saying. All right? Behold, we are, what? Your servants. Again, indentured slavery. He goes, I'm gonna, we're going to pay it off. What we did was reprehensible. It should have never been done. We should have never sold you as a slave. We owe you our lives. You saved us. You spared us. We're in Goshen, we're thriving, we'll, we'll become your indentured slaves. That's what they're saying again, right? Now here's Joseph, he's weeping, right? This is what it happens. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me. So their intention was to hurt him, to remove him from the family. It was an evil intent. Yes, you did. But God turned it around, meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to keep many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. 
I will provide for you and your little ones. And so he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Here's a man who's now prime minister. These are nobodies. They're just guests in Egypt. And they realize it. We're at his mercy. He can have us killed. He can have us wiped out. He's prime minister. He can have us just beheaded. Every single one of us. And they know it. And so now they're crying for mercy. And they say, just give us time. We'll pay you back. But Joseph doesn't has, has, wants nothing of that. I forgive you. And he comforted them. And he reassured them. And he spoke kindly to them. Here's one in power, forgiving someone who has no power. That's the forgiveness we see in Scripture. Whether it be Philemon towards Anisimus, whether it be the, the father towards the prodigal son, whether it be in our parable of the ruler towards the indebted slave, or whether it be here the story of Joseph, it's always the powerful forgiving those who have no power. The one who has leverage, forgiving those who have no leverage. If someone is asked to forgive someone who has leverage, someone who has power, that forgiveness can easily, be, can easily be enabling someone to hurt them again. That's not the forgiveness we see in Scripture. So what is to happen when someone is hurting you and you feel you have to forgive him because God's Word says to forgive? Well, the first thing you do if this person is more powerful than you, is in a position of authority, is to remove yourself from that individual. Is to move back so that you do not, you're no longer in harm's way. That's the first step. Once you're no longer in harm's way, then you forgive him from your heart, as it says in verse 35. Forgive them and let God deal with them. And then the time will come when they may no longer be in power. So, for example, Joseph's brothers were in power. They were older. They had authority. And they took him. They sold him to Midianites. And, but then later on now, Joseph is in power. And Joseph forgives. So when that person was hurting you right now, is re you're removing yourself from him. You forgive him in, within your heart. The day may come. The Lord will have granted to you. And it's, I've seen this many times. When you could see that individual because either he's older or the person is more remorseful, he's no longer, doesn't have any power, no cloud over you, you are stronger as an individual and you come in strength and you say, I forgive you because he can no longer hurt you. That's a different kind of hurt. And I brought this in because this is the question that I get often asked. How can I forgive him? I've, hurt, I've forgiven him and he keeps hurting me. I forgive him and he keeps hurting me. First thing you need to do, as I said, is remove yourself. Forgive him within your heart. Leave him in the hands of God. When he is weakened and you are stronger, then you can meet up with that person and you say, I forgive you for the wrong you've done me. That's what we see in Scripture. Now, having said this, having shared the determining factor I will now close with this. The kind of forgiveness we are to give each other on an ongoing basis, between husbands and wives, between parents and children, uh, between uh, friends, is the kind of forgiveness that God wants that we see here displayed. The kind of forgiveness where we do not keep track. As I said last week, love does not keep a record of the wrongs. Right? Now, in my life, I have had to forgive individuals who have hurt me, and some of them have hurt me deeply. Some of them were very close to me uh, in, in, within a family uh, milieu, and I've had to forgive them. 
And when I have forgiven these individuals, I've not forgiven them because I was strong enough to forgive. I wasn't. In fact, I was afraid. I was really overcome with a sense of, of uh, fear and, and just I was paralyzed with fear because the individual I was forgiving was someone who had wronged me over a number of times and this person did not see that he had wronged me. And when finally the Lord freed me, as I mentioned last week, in that room, in the quiet time as I was worshiping God, <clears throat> the Lord freed me from this anger and from this need to be vindictive towards this individual. And I saw him years later, and he was um, much weaker and no longer in a position of power over me. And I went up to him, and I hugged him, and I said, I forgive you. Now, I remember those words, how the person was stunned by those words. He never expected. He expected me to actually tell him off, and just vent out my anger towards him because he had done, had done me wrong. And he'd done me, done me wrong in many ways. But I remember the freedom I felt in saying those words. So while I did forgive him in my heart while I was alone, and yes, while I did separate myself for a time from this individual, when I was stronger and more mature, I reconnected with this individual and... I was able to forgive him. And I remember leaving that moment. I remember walking away, and I had such joy in my heart. That's how we know that we are walking in the Spirit. When the joy of the Lord is exuberant and is just overflowing, and, and we're singing, and there's this, there's this great peace that overcomes us. When we don't have that, when the joy of the Lord is not governing our hearts, when the peace of God that surpasses all understanding is not guarding our minds in, in, in Christ Jesus, then we are in, in a state of uneasiness and we know there's something wrong. We know there's something we need to do. My case was first ask God to give me grace to forgive him and then after separating myself from this individual, I met up with him and forgave him freely. And how are we to forgive him? We're to forgive him as though he has never done us wrong. In other words, we give this person a clean slate. That's the way God forgives us. His, his tenderheartedness, his tender loving kindness is so visible towards us as we see in this parable. That's what we need to extend one toward another. And in this way, we are perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect, as it says in Matthew chapter 5. Only in this way. Let's thank him together. Let's praise him. Heavenly Father, your forgiveness towards us is so extravagant. It is so mind-blowing. It is beyond our comprehension. We don't fully understand it. Only eternity will reveal the fullness of that forgiveness when we stand before you and we're going to see how much you have forgiven us, how great your mercy was towards us, how indeed you were so kind towards us. And we will be amazed. Thank you, Lord, for calling us to yourself. Thank you for forgiving us. And though we do not fully understand the depth and the height and the width and the length of this forgiveness, we, we don't, Lord. Yet we taste it 
And we do not want to be recalcitrant towards you and, and, and say, I can't forgive him, I can't forgive her. Lord, for those who are in a position of weakness towards others and have been hurt by others, I pray that you give them the wisdom and the strength to separate themselves from those who are hurting them. But for the rest of us who, are, who have leverage, we don't want to hold the Damocles sword over people's heads. We don't want to say, you've hurt me, I will not forgive you, I will not treat you kindly, I will keep a distance from you. Deliver us from that kind of attitude. Because as, we're, as we read in your word, Lord, if we keep that attitude towards others who have hurt us, there is a consequence. And I pray, Lord, that we would never fall into that trap. The enemy would want nothing more than for us not to forgive each other, not to forgive a sibling, not to forgive a spouse, not to forgive a friend, not to forgive someone that has hurt us years ago and no longer is in a power, a strength, position of power. And would want us to stay angry and resentful and distant. Deliver us from that lie. Deliver us from all the schemes of the enemy. Teach us to forgive, to genuinely forgive, to please you by forgiving each other. Pour into our hearts your tender kindness. May the mercy of the Father be the mercy that is displayed in the church so that the world will see and be drawn to the beauty of the mercy of God. May the church shine this way, Lord, I pray. And I thank you for your word, and I thank you for this wonderful passage of Scripture that has blessed us. In the precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.